All right, so we're in the book of Proverbs this morning. Uh, the, uh, if you're unfamiliar with where it is, like I was saying, if you go somewhere in the middle, you're going to find the Psalter, the Psalms, and then Proverbs is the book immediately following the, the Psalms. Proverbs chapter 18 is where we are, and if you don't have a Bible, there are still a couple on the table back there. Feel free to stand up at any point and go pick one of those up so that you can have these words in front of you this morning that we're going to look at together. Proverbs chapter 18, I'm just going to read one verse this morning, and it's verse 1. Proverbs 18, 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You'll recall uh, uh, Easter was a couple of weeks ago. And so what we've been doing on the tail end of Easter as a church is considering uh, what the resurrection means for us as a group of immortals, as a group of people whose life has begun in eternal state. Like it's going to go on forever. There's not an end to our life as those who have been united with Christ in a death like His, united with Christ in a life like His, and living for Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue mining this vein this morning. We've been in John's Gospel as a church for a, a long time, uh, but we've taken short hiatuses. Hiatuses? Hiatus? I don't, what's the plural of that? I don't know. But we've taken short breaks out of, out of uh, the Gospel to run after some of these ideas. And Jesus, in John chapter 11, what we looked at in, on Easter Sunday was, the, uh, was the, uh, the, the statement that Jesus makes, I am the resurrection and, and the life, understanding that he says that right before he calls Lazarus out of the grave, using his words. He calls Lazarus out, and they come, and Lazarus comes out of the grave, and he points to the fact that Jesus has the power over death, which is then going to be seen in his own resurrection later in John's gospel and in all of the gospel accounts when Jesus overcomes death, never to die again. And so this is what we're doing. We're thinking about the implications of the resurrection on our lives as believers? What does it look like for us to live in light of the resurrection? What are the implications for us as those who have new life in Christ and that life is eternal life that will never end? What does it mean for us to live in light of, of those things? So last week, again, we spent time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, where the Apostle Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that, the, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so last week we spent time thinking about the reality that we as people are built, as those who are made in God's image, we're built for relationships. We're built for community. We're built to be together with other people. That's the life we're meant to be engaged in. When we're meant to be engaged in it with others. And so the foundation of true biblical community the foundation of our life together is found in the newness that we have in Christ, because that's something that we all share. There is no 
there is no Christian, no one who has trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and have, has repented of that sin and turned from it and moved the other way. There is no one who has done that genuinely who is, who is not new in Christ, who does not have newness in Christ, who does not possess eternal life as their inheritance, just like Christ. And so we are united with Christ in a death like His, united with Christ in a life like His, so that we might live for Him. Being united in Christ's life means that when our mortal bodies die, our immortal soul receive an immortal body that matches the newness that we have inside and that will live forever. So the eternal life that Jesus gives us isn't just, this is what I want you to understand from last week, what we talked about. The newness of life or the eternal life that Jesus gives isn't just a future promise. Sometimes as Christians, we talk about it just like a future thing, like, well, I'll have eternal life. No, you have eternal life. It is currently yours. You currently possess it. And there is a few steps here before everything is fully realized where your body right now that's breaking down and decaying will match the newness of life that you have internally. That'll happen upon your death in this body, but then you'll get an eternal body that matches, that'll never break down, that'll never decay, and you will live with God forever. But right now, you have this eternal life. This life will last forever, and the guarantee that we have of that is that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered sin and death through the resurrection. And there's no, there's no way that we as believers can think that we can inherit eternal life with the, without the actual historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would be foolishness. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection and our eternal life. So, one of the implications of that is that the relationships that we have within the local church, the relationships that we have with other Christians, other people who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in the heart that God raised them from the dead, the implication of that is that these relationships that you have will go on for eternity. They will not go away when you die, when this body dies. They will continue on in eternity. Lots of things will not last that we see here in this place. But everyone who is joined to Christ will live forever. Jesus walked the earth. He is fully God, and He is fully man. And so, being fully man, He knows us. He knows our frame. He understands us. He experiences the same things that we experience as people. And He tells us to come to Him for comfort as those as the one who understands us perfectly. But as we concluded last week, as we finished up our time together, we were reminded that Jesus meets us in our loneliness. He meets us in our burdens, in our sadness, in our sorrow, and in our joy, in our gladness, in our confusion, in our frustration, and whatever we may be experiencing as people. He meets us in a very practical way. He meets us here in the local church, actual people that make up the actual church, actual names, first, middle, last names, and faces of people who are here this morning. Jesus meets us practically in these ways through these people. 
not through some ethereal thing. Now, Jesus works miraculously, and sometimes in those things, there are ways in which he speaks to us without the means of people. But, but here, in this place, Jesus chooses to use us very, very regularly to build his church. Actual people, actual situations, actual scenarios. It's been said many times, and many of you have heard us say this here at Buffalo City Church, but the church is not a building. When you go to church, you're not going to a building. Well, you did come to a building this morning, but you did not come to be in a building. You could be in a building anywhere in in town. You came to meet with the people of God, and that's the church. The church is the people of God gathered together. We ask the question, what is the local church? If someone asks you that question, the answer to that question is the, the church is the people of God united with Christ, um, joined together with Him, saved by grace, gathered together for His purposes. That's who we are. That's who we are. The church is God's people set aside for God's purposes. How do we become God's people? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, through repenting of our sins and turning the other way and being joined to Christ by faith. So, when the people of God gather together for God's purposes, we ask, what are the purposes of God for us? To worship Him, to make Him known, and to be holy or set apart as He is holy. And to love one another. That's just the way that this works itself out so frequently for us as a body. To love one another. Our love for one another. Jesus says that our love for one another is how we tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ. The love that we have for one another as a body of Christ, as those who are set apart for God's purposes, is the way in which we tell the world about who Jesus is. This is Jesus' evangelism strategy. Jesus' evangelism strategy is to, for the people of God to love one another. He says it like this in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the way in which we now welcome men and women into the God's family is by demonstrating, them, demonstrating to them the love that God has for us expressed through us to one another. Here's how we should say it. This is how it works. God uses human means. So God, again, often accomplishes his purposes, the worship, the proclamation of his name, and the love that he has for us. He often uses us to bring about and accomplish those purposes. And like I said a moment ago, absolutely, he steps in and acts miraculously from time to time. But sometimes we miss the miracle because we're cut off from the men and women of the church. Because we're cut off from the people who make up and who are in this place together, sometimes we miss the miracle because we're cut off from these people are from biblical community. So when we drift out of biblical community, we miss out on a vital aspect of our relationship with Jesus. Because last week, again, we said this too, all other community efforts, all other efforts at bringing about a community are pale imitations of what God has done for us. 
primarily because every single person who has trusted Jesus in this place will last for will live forever and those relationships that we have with one another will also remain forever. So that's where this proverb comes in. I love the proverbs. I don't know that I've ever preached a proverb in like six and a half years. I could be wrong about that, but I love the proverbs because the proverbs are wisdom sayings. They're short bursts of practical wisdom, mostly written by King Solomon. And if you read the early chapters of Proverbs, you'll see that, you'll see that Solomon is speaking to his son, or that's kind of how he's framing this book. He's framing it as a, a passing along of wisdom. It's really a discipleship relationship that Solomon has with his son, teaching his son about God, about his law, about what's required, and what it means to live wisely. So the Proverbs, if we were to sum this up, what does it mean to live wisely according to the Proverbs? It's to honor and fear the Lord and to keep his law. And the key, the, I'm, sure, I'm sure what you've heard many Proverbs in your life, some in the Bible, some out, Proverbs aren't exclusive to the Bible, but the key to any proverb and applying the Proverbs, especially in the Bible, is timing. That's the key. It's like comedy. The key to comedy is timing, I think. But, um, but the reality is that Proverbs operate much in the same way. You have to know when, and you have to have the recall. So th- this is, uh, the Proverbs confirm this themselves. Proverbs fifteen twenty three says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. You see, that's all about timing. An apt answer, the correct answer is a joy to man, and a word in season, or at the right time, is, is uh, how good it is. So to know the right thing to say at the right time is a gift. It's both a gift to the speaker, and it's a gift to the hearer. So committing Proverbs are very, to memory are very, is a very easy thing to do. Because they're so short, something like to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is, is a simple thing to commit to memory, and it is the wisdom of Jesus Christ standing before you at all times in your mind. And parents, parents in here, these are invaluable tools for your parenting. Rebecca and I had a, a friend in a, a couple uh, in, in seminary who they were a handful of years older than us, and we were starting out our parenting, and they had been parenting for a decade or so, and they always had these in, in mind to uh, gently yet firmly correct their children. Because that's the design of the Proverbs, is to disciple someone along, to bring your child along in a relationship with Jesus Christ that is according to, to wisdom. So, Proverbs 18.1, though, the one that we just read a few moments ago, is practical wisdom for biblical Community. And so for the rest of the time, I want to explore this and then apply it directly to us at Buffalo City Church. So, two things that I want you to see here in the proverb, and then we'll apply it. The first thing is this, just that first, uh, that first sentence or clause. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. So the Holy Spirit, through Solomon here warns us about cutting ourselves off from others, from community and from friendships, the danger of isolation, we'll call this. Our 
our ESV, if you're reading the ESV, if you grabbed one of the Bibles off the back, or if you're reading the ESV like I am, um, you're going to see uh, it translated, whoever isolates himself. But actually, it's more appropriately translated as an identity. Something like, um, this doesn't quite capture the idea, but the antisocial or the isolated. Like, this is your identity as someone who is isolated, not just someone who, from time to time, isolates yourself. It's, a, it's the part of, a part of who you are and what makes you up as a person. So Solomon is talking about the one for whom isolation is or has become a habit or is a way of life. Our society has developed um, a lot of personality profile tests, things like this, uh, which can be helpful tools. Like personality tests, I'm sure you've done these at work or somewhere in your past in college or who knows. If you're on a leadership team somewhere, these are tools that are oftentimes referenced and used. Something like Myers-Briggs or the DISC or Enneagram. These are helpful tools in learning how we relate to other people. And they are, like I said, they are helpful. But what people often do, what Christians especially often do, is we use these things and these results we get out of these man-made tests to justify certain behaviors towards other people. You say, well, I'm a this number in the Enneagram, or I'm a this or that thing in this test, or I'm a dominant personality, and so I need to only relate to people who are this type of person. But the reality is that these are, in fact, man-made, and they can't operate for us as Christians, as helpful as they can be in understanding our relationships, they can't operate for us as Christians as excuses for ignoring God's Word. Because like the flower of the field, these tests will move on, and cultures that come after ours will ignore them altogether. And many cultures before us lived and thrived without them. Um, And so it's clear that we as people can live and even flourish without personality profiles. But we know that the word of the Lord will stand forever. This is God's word to us. It's not not man-made, and we should treat nothing outside of God's word as lasting. Categories like introvert can leave people believing that they can make a habit of being isolated and that's okay. But that's not the case. That's not the case. These are not, these are not arguments from wisdom. This is wisdom here that we see in, in Proverbs. Now, don't miss a big angle of this either because there are many people who would even consider themselves not to be introverts, to be extroverts, who are oftentimes and regularly isolated, who fit a particular profile and feel like they're around people a lot, but may not be. So there are many people who isolate, and they aren't around people. But be forewarned that there are, uh, just because there are people uh, around you, doesn't mean that you're not isolated. And I genuinely think that this is more true in our world than it's been probably in most of human history. To be around people all of the time, but to still be isolated. That is a possibility, because we're not just talking about seeing people, we're talking about how we engage with people. I think it's especially prevalent when we're only willing to engage on our own terms. So last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we saw that Paul said that he regards no one according to the flesh any longer. 
And so engaging in our own terms is exactly that, is regarding people and engaging them exclusively based on the flesh, based on external criteria that we set up as people. We saw that regarding others according to the flesh will not meet the need we have for biblical community. So we cannot look at people the way that the world does. That's what Paul is saying. We can't look at the way the people the way the world does. We need to look at them the way that Jesus looks at them. And how does he look at them? Either those who are united with him by faith or those who are not. We can't look at the people people around us like the world does according to external features like class or uh, age or situation in life. Rather, we need to look at others and see them as God does. Are they in Christ? Are they joined together with Christ by faith? And so, true biblical community is found in our union with Christ, not what we look like, not what we talk like, not how many kids we have or what car we drive or, or if we like to golf or not. True biblical community is founded in our union with Christ. And so if we regard others according to the flesh and curate a friend group or a community around us with external factors, you may be isolated. You may still be isolated because those are your terms, not God's, for engaging in biblical community. So when you engage on your own terms, you're able to remain unaccountable. No one really knows you. You can fake it. You can sort of just hang out for an hour on Sunday or bump into somebody at the grocery store. Those are easy ways to sort of, but when you're with someone with regularity, they see the true, the true you, right? When this week I spent many hours underneath a truck replacing a starter and John Baumgartner was with me the whole time and, and he saw the true me in those moments. I hope that it was a sanctified version and he was encouraging to me. But so isolation isn't just not being around people. The isolated that Solomon speaks about are those who actively avoid others and choose not to see people the way that God does, but according to the flesh. And they keep people at arm's length in order to remain detached and unobligated. And you can see how many people can be around lots of people with lots of time, and yet that's still be a reality for them. Solomon says there is a reason for making a habit of isolation. And it's the second half of this clause. The one who isolates himself seeks his own desire. The ESV, again, doesn't really capture this necessarily because there's a clear, in the original language, there's a clear negative quality here. Seeks his own desire. Your desires aren't bad. They're not bad. But what's being implied here is, uh, is selfish desire or even something like lust or unhealthy longing. The isolated person wants to satisfy his or, own her, his or her own selfish desire and knows that engaging with other people will in fact cause them at best to put those things at, on hold and at worst for this person to sacrifice them all together. Let me say that again because that's important. The, the heart of what Solomon is saying here is the isolated person wants first and foremost 
to satisfy their own selfish desires and knowing that engaging with others in biblical community that God does means that they may have to put those things, those desires on hold or at worst cause them to be sacrificed altogether. Commentator Tremper Longman writes this. He says, the verse describes those who are internally focused on their own desires, but such a focus would naturally separate them from community. So if we need a positive and practical picture of one who does not isolate himself in this way, we should look to Jesus, obviously. He, Jesus Christ left the comforts of heaven. He came to earth. He sacrificed those comforts, even laying down his life in order that we might be brought into God's family at much and uh, great personal cost. Jesus brings us into God's family. Jesus did not remain far off. The cost to him was great, even infinite, even an infinite cost. Because Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is the mind, Paul says earlier in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, this is the mind that we are to have among ourselves, is that we should consider others more highly than ourselves. We are meant to follow Jesus in this example. And so the danger of isolation is that it would prevent us from living like Jesus lived. And we're told to forsake selfish desires, to set them aside for a time or permanently and not to be isolated. We're told to be isolated is to, with no checks, pursue those desires. We're going to consider the second half of the proverb as well. After the semicolon, if you're reading in the, in the ESV, it says, he breaks out against all sound judgment. We're going to call this a misuse of resources. A misuse of resources. The second half of the proverb says the isolator is seeking his own desires, and that means that this individual breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, that's kind of a strange way of saying it, but the sense here is that she, he or she is actively ignoring what is wise, actively ignoring wisdom, not out of ignorance, not out of ignorance. Now, remember, we as people, as those who are in Christ, have a upward trajectory that is not always exactly upward, but sort of up and down, as God makes us more like Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. And sometimes we come to things like this and be like, I did not know this, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you directly. And so maybe this is something where we need to understand more deeply what God is calling us to. But the sense here is that this individual is actively ignoring wisdom actively being the operative word, not out of ignorance, but to break out against means that this action is against good advice. This action is against good advice. And what our ESV translates sound judgment here is in other translation just rendered wisdom. But the word carries the notion of resourcefulness. So uh, earlier in the book of Proverbs in chapter 2 verses 6 through 8, Solomon writes, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. 
He stores up sound wisdom. Sound wisdom is the same word here. For the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Now that sound wisdom being, being the word that is the same, that is found in 2.7. So, but the idea within that whole, uh, those three verses is that God gives us resources and that he causes us as people who are in him to be resourceful, to use the God-granted, God-given resources and gives us the ability to help maneuver through our life. So the one who isolates himself or herself is actively deciding, this is it, actively deciding to misuse a vital resource that God has given, mainly, in this instance, community. So God gives us one another. He gives one another to us, at his church, as a resource for life. Okay, so we're embroiled in this, in a, in a large home renovation, top to bottom, right, right now. And that, that can be especially challenging. I've done many things similar in my life, and I've done many things similar in my life without the right tools in place. And now, you know how badly a project goes uh, when you're trying to squeeze out the right results with the wrong tools. It just doesn't happen the way that you want it to. And you kind of look at it and you're like, ah, if I had done this a little bit better here or there. But the right tools make the home renovation project go much smoother and yields the results that we desire. Um, and so this go-around in our home renovation project, I've really worked hard to get a hold of the right tools and not, in my youthful, I'd be like, i got to get this done now. Don't have the right tools, but I'm going to do it right now. And I think the Lord has developed in me a small amount of patience. So, but if you had the right tools in the garage but ignored them, this is, this is a little bit more what we're driving at here. If you had the right tools in the garage and you ignored them while doing a, a project, um, you, would, you would be a fool. That would be foolish. Because those tools to get the right results and to make your project go much easier are sitting in the garage. Well, that, that seems pretty, pretty foolish. And this is the same type of foolishness of the one who isolates himself or herself when God's means and resources are at his or her disposal. So if we go back up to where we began this morning, Jesus meets us in our loneliness. He meets us in the burdens that we have. He meets us in the sadness and sorrow that we have, in our joy and in our gladness and in our confusion and in our frustration. And he meets us in these things through the community of the local church, given to us as a resource, given to us as a great and perfect gift. And so I want to apply this to us in particular this morning as a congregation. This is a practical takeaway. We're just going to call this the case for, for community groups. So at Buffalo City Church, we, we currently have eight community groups that meet throughout the week, and usually they're somewhere between eight and 12 adults, and, a, and some have a bunch of kids to add to that number. So our community group, for example, has nine adults and I think 15 kids and two more on the way. So you can imagine what that looks like on a Thursday evening in our home. But um, one of the designs for community group is to be a conduit for this community that we're talking about, to fight against 
this isolation that is uh, that the Bible tells us is in fact foolishness. It's not just for the sake of getting together, but for the purpose of being a God-given resource to one another. To be the way that Jesus offers comfort and care to us. To bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of love. To have opportunity to love and forgive and to serve one another. And let me just let you in on a secret. When we, when we talk about community groups, there's, there's no such like title or thing given in the Bible. And maybe that's your argument for not participating, but I hope to speak to that in a second. Community groups aren't in in the Bible. Sunday congregational worship we're doing right now is a non-negotiable outlined element in in the New Testament. Singing, reading, praying, preaching, the Lord's Supper, baptism, these are things that the church gathers to do once a week on the Lord's Day. And every believer should find themselves in a local church every single Sunday, participating together with the body of Christ, building community, being united together, because the New Testament tells us that that's necessary. But even when community groups are not necessarily in the Bible in word, um, they're like as an organized thing. That doesn't mean they aren't valuable, because even though community groups aren't in the Bible, community groups, lowercase c and lowercase g, are definitely in the Bible. Groups of people that know each other well, love each other well, and are deeply committed to one another. Like in the early church, right after Pentecost, when God sends his Holy Spirit, um, there is a big sermon that the apostle Peter preaches. And then at the end of chapter two in the book of Acts, we're told that there's this picture in Acts 2, 42 through 47. There's this picture of community where everyone is devoting themselves to learning from the apostles. They're devoting themselves to one another. They're growing. They're eating together. They're engaging. And the end of that, well, in verse 44, says, And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And the outworking, or what, what happens finally in verse 47 is that many were being added to their number day by day because there was an attractive quality to this. The Holy Spirit was moving among them and was giving them great opportunity to be a light and a witness into, in their community. So these are, this vision, though, wasn't limited to a once-a-week gathering, but it was a flourishing relationships that were grounded in new life that they had in Christ. And so, as a church, um, the elders here at Buffalo City Church, we know specifically that we have, in our culture, unique challenges that may or may not have occurred in human history previously for us as a congregation that threaten, that threaten our biblical community and cause us to drift more quickly into isolation. These things threaten to pull us apart. And we can talk about a lot of these. I'm just going to talk about two because these are, I think, again, mostly unique to our culture and things that don't need to just be given over to, but things that at least at some level need to be combated so that we can live according to God's word. The first thing is just this. The first thing is mobility. Families in, 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 the, in the modern world are more spread out than they ever have been. Many of us in this place have family members, even immediate family members, who live many, many miles away. 
hundreds and even thousands of miles away. Now, outside of some financial costs to you, you can go see those people pretty much at the drop of a hat. You can hop in a vehicle or you can get on a plane and you can go see those people. That is a very unique experience in our world. Most nuclear families would remain together for most of human history, would remain together in the same town for most of, most of their lives. But the increased in, uh, ability to be mobile as a, as a group of people has changed that pretty dramatically. You can pick up and move across the country again pretty much at the drop of a hat with some financial cost. And some of, some, uh, sometimes even just like jobs and work and things like that pull you away from, from home with a lot of regularity. So the ability to travel long distances quickly is a relatively unique reality for us. And for most of history, again, you'd rarely, if ever, leave your hometown. Many people would never, ever, I went to school, this is, I went to school, I went to college with a with a, a friend uh, who lived in Harvey. And he had never left, and we were at NDCU, and he never left the state of North Dakota. He was 18 or 19 years old when I met him, and he had never left the state of North Dakota. And that was weird. That, that felt weird to me. And he was like, I won't even drive across the river because I, I, I don't want to disrupt that yet. He wouldn't drive across into Moorhead because he didn't want to disrupt the reality that he had never left the state of North Dakota. I don't know if he was waiting for something special. I don't know what. But... Um, but that was weird, whereas the inverse for most of human history is, in fact, the weird thing, right? It's actually far more weird to have traveled long distances, again, for most of our, our existence. But this mobility has affected the church. Sunday attendance and availability to one another as the body of Christ has decreased because of this, because of vacations and business trips. And, and even uh, people who would exist in the same church for their entire life now may attend many churches over the course of their lives, many, many miles, many, many miles apart. But the Christian life assumes proximity to other believers in community. And our mobility has impacted our availability to, to others. We need to consider this. Another even more recent development uh, is, the, is the Internet and the availability of widespread connectivity. People are more connected than ever in our world, and there are benefits to this. But at the same time, even though we're more connected to in the world, we, we're actually, in a lot of ways, more disconnected than we've, ever, than we've ever been. And what I mean is that people are connected to more people over larger areas, but less connected in face-to-face -face relationships. The internet has given us the illusion that we have community, but we may be one of the least face-to-face -face cultures in history. Even in a small community like ours, a relatively small community, I spend as much time talking on the phone and texting people even in this room this morning as I do with them face-to-face. -face. It used to be that face-to-face -face would be the only way that we could have relationships, but now that's not the case. Our interconnectedness gives the world gives us many options. But the danger of this is that we, we don't have any true relationships that aren't just curated, that are sort of airbrushed, and, and we can paint a picture for people about our lives because we don't actually have to look at them and spend substantial amounts of time with them face, face to face. 
And again, the world continues to trend in this direction where people even a couple of years ago would go to the office. Now, many, many more people in our society don't even go to an office. They work from home with a lot of regularity. But when people don't know the struggles in our lives and the triumphs and the joys and our sorrows, we think we can, we can fall quickly out of connection with one another, and, but still believe that we are because we texted a bit last week or because we FaceTimed a month ago. But being face-to-face makes it far more difficult to, for, people to con- or for us to control what people think about us. And this is what the Internet does for us. It changes the way or it gives us opportunity to control the narrative about who we genuinely are as, as people. Well, I like to be well thought of, and I'm sure you like to be well thought of also. But, and that's easier in the world we live in because we paint the picture for others through the Internet, through social media, pick a thing, uh, that, and disconnected means of connection. So, again, mobility and connectedness in this way aren't bad things. They're not, they're not at their core bad things. But they can be misused and cause us to drift out of the real relationships with men and women with whom we have relationships that will, in fact, last for eternity. And I could mention other things here on this list, too, things in our society that, that threaten biblical community, like just overcommitted schedules. We tend to be incredibly busy and not build any margin into our lives, or an overabundance of extracurricular activities. But let me press the point out of all of this. We have unique challenges in our world that pull us apart rather than bring us together. So how do we treat our tendency? How do you and I treat our tendency according to Scripture to drift out of biblical community, to drift out of God-ordained community of the local church? And we treat it by being more intentional. So like I said, community groups aren't in fact in the Bible in the way that we say capital C, community, capital G, groups. But what they're designed to do for us is recognize the unique cultural challenges that we have here in this place, in our day and age, and combat them with with something that gives us opportunity to be together often. We remind ourselves of what sets biblical community apart and makes it the primary place we should find our community. United with Christ in his death, united with Christ in his life, living for him, investing in eternal things like the souls of the men and women here in this place, not just temporary things. The immortal lives of our Christian brothers and sisters will go on for an eternity. And so an investment there is never a wasted investment. Community groups, therefore, are the intentional way that we've agreed together to fight against the drift that pulls us out of these relationships that God has designed for us. They're a way that we maintain the relationships needed to combat the foolish isolation from Proverbs 18.1. And remember, God uses human means. He has chosen each and every one of you here in this place who is united with him in a death like his and in his life and is living for him. He has chosen each and every one of you to use you to impact the men, other men and women who share the same identity in this place. He uses people to extend the care and comfort of Christ to others. He uses people like us to build one another up in the Lord. He uses people like us to lighten the burdens of others. 
He uses people like us to celebrate life's highs and mourn together in life's lows. He uses people like us to help one another grow in the knowledge of God and His Word. He uses people like us to point out sin and show us our sin, where we need to turn, where we've transgressed the commands of Christ, so that we might grow in deeper relationship with Jesus. And to actively avoid these things, to isolate oneself, to ignore a life-giving resource that God gives to us is to act selfishly and to be utterly and inexcusably foolish. So I mentioned home renovations before, and I'm just going to say this. Having the right tool for the job. God gives us all of the tools that we need as His people for all of our needs to be met. His Spirit, His Word, and His church. Another proverb for you to consider is Proverb 26.7. It says, like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Solomon says that a proverb is an effective tool, but when it's given to a fool, it is useless. God has given to us a very important resource we need that you, every single person who professes the name of Christ, he's given us a tool that we need for this life, and that is the community of the local church. It is said that a poor man or a poor workman, it's a poor workman that blames his tools. But it's a foolish workman who wonders why his project is going so poorly when the tools he needs to succeed collects dust in the garage. This is wisdom. And this is the case then for community groups, to, be, get, to keep a God-given resource close at hand, to be given God-given resource to one another, to live wisely with what God has given to us, and to resist the cultural forces that cause us to drift out of biblical community. So in conclusion this morning, as we move to the Lord's table, because of the resurrection of Jesus, this is what I want to drive home for you. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can live wisely. Jesus died for us. We together as his church, he died for his church. And he gives us one another to be the way that he meets us and many things. And then Jesus was raised ensuring that our resurrection is a future reality and ensuring that any investment that you make, ensuring that any investment that you make in the soul of another person here in this place is an eternal investment. Community group is a way that you can participate in a God-given resource, His church. Fighting against foolish isolation, fighting against sinful flesh that wants to act selfishly and pursue selfish desires. So if you're wondering, how do I, how do I get involved in a community group? The, the answer is, is pretty simple. There are community group leaders in here this morning, and several have been pulled out. John is over here. Mark is over here. John Baumgartner is in the back. Um, I'm missing a couple, but I'm sure you're in here somewhere. The, the reality is that these guys uh, lead groups throughout the course of the week, and, uh, and just catch one of them and ask, hey, when's your group meet? How do, I, how do I go about getting involved? Where do we go? There, if their night of the week doesn't work, come talk to me. I'd be happy to get you plugged in to one of these places. Consider, and if none of the nights of the week work, then maybe it's time to reassess the calendar um, because this is, again, a non-negotiable of, of the Christian life. You might be putting yourself in a precarious position, ignoring God's word, being dangerous, living dangerously and foolishly fast and loose with what God has given you in this life. 
And so I want to acknowledge that this is not an easy thing, and it's not especially not easy in the culture in which we live, where we're very private people. We, we tend towards, as upper Midwest people, we tend towards, tend towards isolation. We tend to want to sort of be left alone and don't meddle in my life and my, my business. And to approach others and to consider going and spending time with another group of people that we may not be all familiar with is, is, can be intimidating. Um, but I want to say this too. Jesus doesn't excuse this because of difficulty. He doesn't say, keep my words unless it's a little tough for you, then let it go. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, he says this about sin, but this can be said of us if we're ignoring his word. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. In Matthew 10, 38, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The point is this. The point is this. It's not to put the fear of God in you, but it's to say that it's to say that we are to take, as Christians, we are to take extreme measures to follow Jesus, to fight sin, to combat fear that may prevent us from misusing a vital resource that God has given to us in the church. So these, but also this, this, this obedience isn't earning you anything. You've been given already given everything that you need in Jesus Christ. You've been given everything, and Jesus' resurrection and His perfect obedience in His life is what opens up this avenue for you. It opens up this avenue to have men and women around you in true biblical community, because in Him we have the life that we need to follow Him. We have His Word. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have His church. This is God's goodness and kindness to us. A loving father doesn't leave his kids to just go figure it out on their own. A loving father brings them along, providing them with wisdom to live the life of obedience that he saved us for. So the local church and the relationships and community we have here is a non-negotiable because it's a God-given gift bought by the precious blood of Jesus, a, a payment of infinite worth. And so that's going to cause us now to transition to the Lord's table, to remember that payment of infinite worth and that sacrifice that Jesus made that opens up this avenue for us, that opens up the ability for us to have community together as as the body of, of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is where we always read from when we go to the Lord's table together. But Paul writes here, after the section that we typically read about remembering remembering the sacrifice of Christ, he writes about the, the reality of the relationships that we have in this place and the impact that the Lord's Supper has on those things. He writes about the fact that the Lord's Supper is designed to be a unifying event for the church. Not individualistic. This isn't just about you. Of course, it is about you. Jesus died for you as an individual. But it's also about us as a group of people. Paul writes for us that we ought to discern the body. That means that we ought to consider others around us when we come together and participate in the Lord's Supper. That, the, that Jesus died for us, yes, but he died for his church to make us a people. The Corinthians, when, when, they, were, when they were taking the Lord's Supper, were drinking we're drinking juice this morning, but they were drinking the wine to drunkenness and eating the food in excess. 
And what they were ultimately doing was not leaving any for those who were different from them. For those who, they showed partiality. They, 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 were, uh, they were discriminatory towards those who had less food and, and clothing and were of a lower socioeconomic status. But Paul says that's by no means what you should do. You should consider that this is a, a level playing field when you come to this table. For everyone who has come to Christ, who has acknowledged their sin, acknowledged the infinite debt that they have, acknowledge the reality that they could not save themselves from their own sin. It is only Jesus Christ and no external factors in this matter. You must come to Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to get to the Father except through him. And so this morning, we're going to approach the Lord's table. And let me read this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from you, uh, from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had said, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So unified together in our declaration of the Lord's death, that he is the only way for us to be saved, to be brought back into perfect relationship with, with God the Father. At Buffalo City Church, when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we do so as a group of believers. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand before God, if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, this is a good opportunity to just reflect. Just reflect on the things that we've said this morning. Reflect on the truth of who Jesus is. Take a moment and just sit and reflect. No one's watching you. No one's judging you in these, in these moments. Um, but if you are a believer, if, even if you're not a member here at Buffalo City Church, if you are a believer in Jesus, have made a profession of faith, have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, feel free, by all means, come forward, pick up the elements, take the bread, take the juice. Um, and when we participate together, the worship team will come up, they'll play, we will, uh, and then when you're ready and prepared in your own heart, you can make your way to the table right here in front. The elements are right in front of me, and you can uh, take those when, when you are prepared in your own heart back at your seat. Parents, lots of kids in here, um, make, a, make a determination for your kids. If they have, in fact, trusted Jesus and made a profession of faith, um, by all means, invite them to participate as well. If that's not the case for your children, use this as an opportunity to uh, share the good news of Jesus Christ with them as you even participate in the elements together. So let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll partake together at the Lord's table. God, we thank you this morning for your word, and God, we thank you for the truth that it contains and the encouragements it gives to us. God, we thank you for the clear reality given to us in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the only way to come to the Father, that through his perfect sacrifice through his death, through his, um, through his perfect life, we now can have relationship with you. God, and so as we come to the table this morning, would you uh, cause us to reflect deeply on our own situation? Are we using the resources that you have given to us? Are we, uh, are we considering them and, uh, and living in light of them? Are we living a life that is honoring to you because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made to us that frees us to live us life that is honoring to you? 
God, as we take the elements, would we remember the broken body of Jesus? Would we remember the shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins? God, and we would desire you more and see you as all satisfying this morning. God, we thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.